1982, the fastest growing company in America was Atari. I don't know about you, but I remember playing Qbert on the Atari 2600 when I was a kid. Man, I'm old. Atari was founded by two guys, Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney. And Bushnell is actually credited as one of the fathers of modern video games. He started more than 20 companies in his career, including an incubator that funded the first company to digitize maps of the world. It was a precursor to Google Maps, and he did it in 1984. I literally wouldn't know where I am right now without Google Maps. But in 1978, Bushnell was actually kicked out of Atari. By 1984, the company had totally crashed and was sold for parts. And most of Bushnell's companies actually failed, either as a result of being too far ahead of their time or totally mismanaged by a mad genius. And this same thing happens over and over, including today with Tesla. You know? I, I, but, but read some of these quotes, right? Like, yeah. quote, I, uh, as CEO of a public company, and this is the headline of this article, okay. Musk is, quote, is a train wreck, <laughs> right, yeah. leadership expert Leadership says. expert, yeah. I, and I'm a, I mean, I don't know who the expert is, yeah. but he behaves a lot more like a private company board. Um, and, uh, and the expert was saying that um, they should, the board needs to be stronger and kind of reining him in. Yeah, see, I, I'm conflicted about that. First of all, you know, again, I mean, where is the methodology... Be- behind defining a train wreck. I don't know. I don't I, I mean I don't know. He's written down. Hello and welcome to ESG Now, the podcast on all things ESG. I'm your host Matt Muscardi, and on today's show, we're going to talk about when genius meets governance. We're trying to get to the heart of a very simple question. What are investors willing to give up? for just a tiny slice of potential brilliance. Atari and its founders were featured in Stephen L. Kent's 2001 book, The Ultimate History of Video Games. And he detailed how quickly things can go wrong when there aren't checks and balances on a company. He wrote that at the time they, quote, held board meetings in hot tubs, drank heavily, experimented with drugs. Sometimes Atari board meetings seem more like fraternity parties than business meetings. Apparently, Bushnell was also famous for his not-so-secret Me Too moments, too. So you have this culture where an arguably genius founder of one of the fastest-growing companies in the entire country was pretty, shall we say, blasé about checks and balances? Um, in a way, this is the essence of corporate governance from a board perspective. The, the, the role of management is to create value. Um, boards don't create value. Boards have to oversee the creation of value and to some extent uh, minimize the risk involved, you know, provide some uh, experienced oversight in terms of strategy and actually making things happen uh, in the real world. Uh, but the vision comes from, from these innovative uh, founders. That was Rick Marshall. He's our resident corporate governance legend. 
And that oversight that Rick's talking about, that can be a really tricky thing. For Atari and Nolan Bushnell, it was pretty much a disaster. But when the board takes more control over a mad scientist at the wheel, well... Take, take Steve Jobs, for example, you know, who's ultimately could be credited with creating the largest company that's ever existed. Uh, and one of the most influential companies that ever ever existed, but we we forget that at one point he was fired from from Apple um, and replaced with a proven CEO who had a track record of running uh, Pepsi, a uh, completely different kind of company, but a huge, very successful company, uh, who then almost destroyed Apple to such an extent that um, he and his his um, successors almost destroyed Apple to such an extent that when Steve Jobs came back in, it was it was coming back into a much-diminished company um, that needed to be really kick-started. Ultimately, as with any corporation, the question here is about control. If you're an investor, you're tying up your capital with this company, and sometimes it's a lot of capital. So what is it you want? You want to know you can trust the company to steward that capital. And it's so much easier to trust something that you can control. But if you're a mad genius dialing up the widgets of tomorrow, what's your incentive to create if you can't control? So what do you do? Well, you probably do what Google did. So a lot of people think of innovation when they look at Google that, you know, they spend money like water, right? And, uh, and, you know, in the early days, they couldn't care less about profitability, right, uh, or about financial discipline. They just threw money at everything, right? Uh, and, uh, yeah, you know, they had a golden shares by the uh, owners of the company that allowed them to control, you know, that uh, and not be subjected to the rigors of the public equity marketplace. But, you know, the, the vast, vast majority of companies, 99.9% of companies don't have that. That was Henry Fernandez. He's the CEO of MSCI. And Henry's talking about golden shares, otherwise known as dual class shares. When Google issued stock for the first time in its IPO, they set it up such that investors would be given one type of share and the founders, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, would get a different type of share. And by doing this, Sergey and Larry ensured that for big things that required shareholder votes like board members or other big governance items, their shares were actually worth more than investors when it came to the vote. So while investors technically owned the company, they didn't own the votes. And what Henry is basically saying here is that that type of structure, which is really used by a tiny number of companies, makes it much, much easier to spend money on things like crazy innovations that might not pan out for a really long time. Since Google did it, it's become something of the model for modern tech companies in Silicon Valley. So much so that a lot of global financial exchanges are actually changing their rules to make it easier to have dual class shares. I'm wondering, um, and maybe you know better than I do, um, which is a phrase I utter rarely. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I'm okay with that, by the way. Uh, I'm wondering, from a global standpoint, 
I mean, you had loyalty shares in France that were kind of an entrenchment problem. You've got these dual listings in the U.S. and the, the Silicon Valley model of listing with Spotify and Facebook mm-hmm. and others. You've got Hong Kong Exchange basically altering the rules to allow for less right, right. shareholder rights. Is there kind of a global move to marginalizing shareholder rights, in at least in some small ways, if not large? Yeah, and you know, and it it's actually the opposite of some of the other things we've seen, where where APAC, you know, Asian markets are are strengthening their governance practices, uh, in, in other regards, you know, with for instance, like uh, women on boards or, or um, so they're doing that to keep up with global best practices because they fear that that comp- there won't be foreign investment if they don't catch up with that, but. Yeah, you're right. They're sort of taking the other, uh, they're making the, the other choice when it comes to shareholder rights. So you've got these two mechanisms of control. You have the board on one hand, who's tasked with managing the management. And you've got proxy voting rights on the other hand. And now these things are linked, but they're the two levers that the most innovative tech companies in the world today are skewing in their favor to make sure they can be left alone just to be mad scientists. Which brings us back to Tesla. Throughout the summer, Elon Musk saw his company targeted by short sellers. In fact, we wrote a blog on this pointing out that Tesla was one of the most targeted companies for investors betting against them in the entire world. We saw Elon Musk hint that the company should go private. It opened an SEC investigation only for him to say later he should stay public. We saw story after story about his personal life, including stress and drug use and fatigue. And in the company's case, the investors, they're actually in control. Technically, Musk owns less than 25% of the voting power, which is kind of generous for for uh, one yeah. of these types of yeah mercurial uh, individuals. He also does not control the board, technically. Right, by independence standards. Right, right. right. Um, Although his brother's on the board. His brother's on the board, yeah. So controls that guy probably. I don't know. This this is an interesting question to me. It's like you're, it, it flies against conventional wisdom for what we uphold as good governance standards, right? But you almost want to give him a mulligan, you know, to use a golf term that I don't really understand. <laughs> if I played golf, I yeah. know what you're talking I, about. I, 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 and it's a, and I think it's a fascinating question is why, 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 why do we give him more credit? I mean, maybe it's the same reason why the marketplace is so fascinated with him in the first place and maybe why he wants to take his company private. I mean, maybe it's too much. So I guess the only question left to answer if you're an investor is do you think of Elon Musk like Steve Jobs or do you think of Elon Musk like Nolan Bushnell? That's our show. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe on iTunes or Google or wherever you get your podcasts. It's ESG Now. My name is Matt Muscardi, and we'll be back next week with another show. Silicon Valley last night, and it made me think of something that that, that we were talking about, kind of loosely related to this. And 
they were talking about you know starting a company and they're talking about you know strategizing you know how to get revenue and one of the characters was like no no that's the that's the opposite thing we should be doing we it, sh- it should be the we don't want to get make, making revenue we want the allure of being able to get revenue one day right i mean that's the that's the thing isn't that kind of a, the elon musk model there i mean there there but there's something to that though i mean you know there's like that it's kind of a, ho- a hopeful i don't know we invest in hope and i mean there's something that kind of corny but nice about that that i think actually does have an effect i mean right isn't that what we look for and i just got like Elon warm Musk. and fuzzy inside it was yeah it's touching the MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.